Testing one, two. Mark, do you have that, that, that clicker by chance? Oh, I don't know. Just share some bars on it or something. Huh? Somebody must have hit it or something. Go ahead and open us in prayer. Commit this one. Well, Father God, we just uh, come to you this great morning of worship. And Father, we, with uh, from the depth of our hearts, we come in the fullness of worship to you. Father, we, your love for us is... Um, truly unconscionable in our minds, but yet so real. And Father, we cannot help but um, be humbled by it, and yet uh, so uh, grateful uh, for your mercy and your grace to us. Lord, uh, from this passage today, as we have been studying in Second Peter, um, Father, it takes us, our eyes, to just a broader perspective um, and a glimpse from where you see it, and yet still can't get a uh, full glimpse of it. So, but yet we just acknowledge your sovereignty um, and your majesty overall. And Father, it is with such great um, expectation is that we even fathom and, and discuss as a group um, eternity and these events that will precede in, in confrontation and judgment yet um, the glory that is before us in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, thank you. And I pray that your spirit will just give us um, the proper perspective as our key takeaway today. And uh, as always, Father, we are so uh, respectful and honored to be um, in the, your presence and to be with your word. And so we just do pray your spirit will guide us in our discussion today in this passage in Second Peter. And we commit this, as always, to you and to your purpose and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you, uh, do you enjoy waiting? Do you enjoy waiting for anything? Do you enjoy waiting for anyone? So describe, you're all were very quick to say no, so go ahead, please describe for me just what, why did you so quickly say that? Maybe contrast that to a time that you were patient and that you were willing to wait. I was young, I was so patient. Even early, the most patient guy you ever, ever find. But I didn't have a whole lot. I just went more whatever. But as you get into art, start getting impatient. Focus becomes different. Mm. What it is. Mm-hmm. Others. It's people in my way, and lack of choice. He's sovereign over. Yeah, you, you, uh, I'll share a personal one. <laughs> yeah, perfect. It's hard for me to go on that one, but just to again point to it, just a personal one is that. Um, you know, this this week marked uh, a key week in in my career. You know, in other words, when you think about when you you go to college, what do you go to college for? Do you go to college to work? So went to college, got a a job at two eleven, and was there for thirty three years, and it ended last week. So you're you're looking for what do you you know? You're always looking to what to retirement, right? So in all of those years, it's sort of like we, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and it's like well. It's here, 
but it's like a, the wait for it was, so I'm, I'm going to tell you that it's, you already quickly go from here to, well, what's next? You know, you're already, you're, already, you're already over there. So one week down, and I'm already saying, okay, well, what's, what's ahead? And it, what it points to is, is, I think you articulated it best, you know, Ian, it's sort of like we quickly forget about that anticipation of that, and we're quickly drifting to something else um, that's personal, uh, whether it's something that we desire, we want, or uh, the next goal, or whatever it might be. And um, it, it points to my impatience already because I'm already quickly saying, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do something else now real quick. I get better get going because we feel like we have to be going, 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 and that's really somewhat the culture that we're dealing with. You know, but I think biblically, as I think about uh, even in the early years, uh, earliest years of, of Scripture, I mean, I, I still go back to the, to the Noah passage, you know, and I mean, waiting the hundred years, it, it's just amazing. Well, you know, think about Abraham and Sarah waiting all these years for a child. Um, Abraham never even did get the possession of the promised land, right? And what, it took him, people, what, 400 years to finally uh, you know, at least possess the land at that point? But I think to articulate it best is that I think what we can conclude is, is that we are so impatient and we don't want to wait. And so what it drives then is our sin nature then becomes the driver, and it manifests itself in many, in many ways. As opposed to the truth that you just shared, which is that God, God is never late. God's timing, I think, to quote you, is, is, is perfect. And with the, the perfect timing in itself, um, you know, it just points to that in contrast. Uh, do you remember, uh, well, if you went to, the, if, you know, in those college days, do you remember what the rule of thumb was? That when your professor didn't show up for ten minutes, what was the what? What did you do? You're you're out of there, right? Look, see, everyone knows that. So basically, you gave there was a time period saying, okay, well, we're going to wait here. Professor's not here. You give him five minutes, and then at five minutes, we started looking around at each other, going like, okay, we'll give him five more. Then he didn't show up in ten, and we're out of there. Well, that that I think does reflect our culture and our perspective of things in, in an actuality is that that mentality or those actions that maybe some of us actually lived out as college students. Um, I was late to Sunday school. Uh, do you think, what, would, you, would you just bolt on me and just say, well, okay, he's not here. I'll give him 10 minutes. Uh, text you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd make Mark pickle. <laughs> well, <laughs> In this contrast is I want us to try to understand the contrast that Peter is going to clearly serve as his motivator in sharing this and what the Spirit is working. And that is, what it was in contrast to this is the mockers. In other words, what we know about um, in Second Peter, actually it goes back to Second um, Peter, where they basically said in... Um, uh, verse 4 and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were for the beginning of creation and and I think that um, 
Nathan had touched on the uh, unit, uh, uniformity type of perspective. And in this situation, so these mockers were somewhat that it's like their attitude was like, okay, well, God, you've had 10 minutes, and now we're, we're gone. You know, we're going to, we, we, that's it. So, and this is this, this perspective because they're saying is that God, where is this, by their statement, where is this promise of his coming? So it is literally this contrast that he closes this, ch- this, um, this chapter of chapter 3 in this letter that focuses on this second coming. And in contrast to those is those that would say it's not coming. Don't believe it. Don't trust. As opposed to what Peter is saying, if God makes a promise, it will happen. So with that as sort of an introduction is that we want to sort of look at how this is going to close this out over this week and next week with Second uh, Peter. And this was this outline that, that I've developed in here before that really brings us, and what Nathan covered, is this, this certainty and this losing hope. And now it is this power or the transformation that occurs in our life as believers during this period of wait. And what are we to be doing now? with a clear view of the promise and what, it's, what we know is coming. And so it is that of this focus in these last verses of verses 3 through 11, 11 through 18 on this day of the Lord and the confidence of that returning of Christ. And so as we look at our objective, that as believers, that we would be eagerly expecting and looking forward to His coming again. And I've underlined these because this is the significance of the key takeaways that come from this, these last several verses of chapter 3. This eagerly expecting and looking forward to His coming again with holiness and godliness in all our behavior. It will be the day when God completes His dealing with sin in His creation. Therefore, we are to recognize the reality of the coming judgment and the destruction of of all things. It's a tough ending. <clears throat> it's a tough ending as we look at is that we've just set the stage for where you're at personally when, from the standpoint of the waiting. We don't want to wait for anything or anybody. Well, I didn't hear anyone say, God, are, are you, in other words, are you okay about waiting upon God? When I said anything and anybody, you quickly put your mind to, well, I don't want to wait on some, you know, this person's not ready to get, is not ready to go. But now I'll apply that to God. Cheryl, you were going to comment? I, I think where we lived, and even back then, there was a culture of plan ahead. Do what you can to prepare for next time, the next thing. We can turn that to our advantage. You don't know when he's coming. But our planning is based upon what we can do to be prepared, turn that to our advantage and, and do it as we, we need to do, ready whenever it occurs. Hold on, I think the, the principle we find in James, if the Lord wills, he says, do strategic planning, go for it. Mark out like what we think, or you know, work very clear, let all that be. Like, so, if you're not open to Second Peter yet, go ahead and please open Second Peter 3, and let's uh, read through our passage uh, as we close out this uh, letter. Second Peter 3, verses 11 to 18. 
someone want to read it, or we can read it from the board here. If all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming, because of which the heavens will be destroyed, not with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heaven in which righteousness. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, thoughtless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given, also in all his letters speaking in them, of which are some things hard to understand, untaught, and unstable, they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfast, throw in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus, both now and to Amen. I'm going to break it up. Uh, today I'm going to try to focus on verses 11 through 14, and then next week we'll try to finish up with 15 uh, through 18 in our focus of this. You know, when I think of, as we open up this, if you think about the Bible and really all of history, so you think about all of our scripture, and all of history itself is really built uh, upon like two interventions Two interventions of Jesus Christ personally to earth. Think about the whole... Again, all of Scripture and all of history is based, built around two interventions. One, as we know, His birth, His death, and His ascension. Second will be His second coming. And other than that, nothing else matters at this point. Everything will be tied in this. And so as we have now had this focus on this significant event. See, in other words, the first has occurred, and so therefore our study and our taking in is for this greater focus with expectation to this second intervention when it occurs. So in 2 Peter 3, Peter is focusing these events associated with the second coming. Now, all of chapter 1, he wrote about redemption. The redemption that was provided from his first coming, that first intervention. In the first part of chapter 3, he again focuses attention on the assurance of his second coming. And those are some of the things that we want to dig into today in some of the passages that further point us to this second coming and this judgment that will take place. He refers to that, and this is something Nathan had touched on, which was this day of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 10. And so this day of the Lord, as he had described, is really a period of time. It is not one specific day. It is a, it's a period of time. It's, it encompasses a number, then, also of events that occur within that time period. And these events that are all part of this day of the Lord they come together and they tie everything to Christ, to earth, and this judgment that will take place, and then ultimately leading to this ultimate redemption of God's creation, which is this new heavens and the new earth. And so, I'm a graphic guy, and a picture person is that, I would tell you that it is, it's challenging for me to just sit and read in Revelation. You know, or to be able to just tie it all together. I just can't do it necessarily because then I get off on a tangent. So, the, for me, it's real simple: is that there are like six key things that are basically break down this understanding of this promise or quote the day of the Lord. So, in this, 
is, as we know, is that we talked about this first intervention, which was Christ's coming to earth, his, his birth, his death, and his resurrection uh, here. We are here right now in this church age. It's, all, it's referred to like a church, it's like a dispensation or period of time. And so the day of the Lord, part of those events, the day of the Lord will actually begin at this tribulation period, but there is this period of this rapture that's going to occur. And we're going to look at some of these passages. But we have the rapture of the saved, the seven-year tribulation, followed by the return of Christ in glory, a thousand-year reign, the great white throne judgment and destruction, misspelled destruction, sorry, and new heaven and a new earth. This makes up this period of the day of the Lord. Now, let's... um, There used to be, and and I looked in the church, and Mark, maybe you can help me. Does this look familiar to you? Uh, Yeah, I remember seeing it. Does that look familiar to you? Okay. It's a Bible map. I, this is like one of the best um, things. It's a, it's a, it actually goes through all of the dispensations um, or the periods of time. In other words, going back uh, to Genesis where there was, in a dispensation was this aspect of the economies of time that there was responsibilities and things. And so this lays out the responsibilities of man and everything through this, but yet at the, at the core of it, really, there's two key intervention points, which is really Christ and then obviously the end in here. I, I, we used to have these. Um, I have a couple of them, but it, it was what helped me to sort of tie this. To, I had to simplify this <laughs> into this because it just where I'm at. Okay? So, the Day of the Lord. Now, some of the events that will take place. So, I thought we would just skim these uh, fairly quickly to kind of just get our, our head around them. Some of the major events that will take place include, in the first one is the rapture of the saved, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 16 and 17. I have that here. It's in verse 16, reading from the New King James. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another uh, with these words. So clearly there is this this rapture of the saved or this, this taking up this taking up where Christ comes in the clouds and the way the words that describe it is, is that, with, that the believers in Christ, those, those that are dead in Christ, would be raised first and then those who were alive would be caught up in the air. This, was gonna, this is it. Other supporting verses uh, to that would be like in, in uh, John 14 and in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the similar types of uh, being spared from this wrath that we have, which is the wrath of... the which is this next um, part of the Day of the Lord, which really consummates it. So this occurs actually before the Day of the Lord. But it, this triggers the event, the events to follow, you see. So as, as you and I as believers in Christ, we will be caught up with Jesus here in the air. Another thing that ties to that is just, he says, you know, you got to be troubled, you know, try to go 
Yeah, that's, that verse is actually, it's, it's 14. Uh, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. That's the John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. The second, which starts this day of the Lord, the, the initial point is this seven-year tribulation, Revelation 6.15. Revelation 6.15. Uh, it starts 15 to 17. And this is, um, you know, the, the sixth seal will, will actually, in this chapter, the sixth seal commences... Um, commences what they call the day of the Lord. So it goes, and I, and I looked in 15, um, 12, I looked upon the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, and cloth of air, and moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops to its figs when we were shaken by the mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, and every free man hid themselves in the caves, in the rocks of the mountains. And, the, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. First time we see this is this reference of, the, of Jesus coming in judgment as this in, in there. So God's pouring out His wrath. And it's actually, there's two segments to this, as we may know in other study, is that there's the three first three and a half years is really this poured out judgment. And then there's also this second three and a half period where God is working to bring Israel to its knees and to faith in Christ and the Messiah. And we know that there are those that come to faith in Jesus in that second part, which is this part of this redemptive piece that continue the continuum of man into that millennial kingdom. And that's what we see in this return of Christ in Revelation 19 then. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the enemies of the Lord will be destroyed. And so we have this um, starting in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And so this really, what we have here is this, obviously this, this the battle of the Armageddon that would be here where we have this actual return of Christ in glory. Following this this battle is that we have the establishment of the millennial kingdom which means a thousand years. Revelation 20, 1-7 and this is where Christ will reign in righteousness. Revelation 20 verses 1-7 through And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should should deceive the nations no more till till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. There's like six places in here that it refers to this thousand-year reign. And so this is this period, and at the end of that, Satan would be released in there. But Christ will come. He will destroy in, through the, in this battle of Armageddon 
then he will establish his thousand-year reign of the kingdom. And so you have production. You have those believers that are populating during that period of time. And then what follows at the end of that is that there's obviously there's rebellion then after this, uh, where at the end of we just read, is that there's this rebellion and, and fire comes down from heaven in verse 9 of that and it consumes the enemies. And this leads to this, this white throne judgment and destruction um, of the earth. I, I don't believe that, you know, a connection is I don't believe that, some people would say is that, well, is it really a literal, a literal thousand years? And I'm going to say absolutely because God said it six times. I would think that <laughs> think that it is, and yet from a time standpoint, as we just saw in Second Peter, is that he referred to a thousand years as a day uh, with the Lord, and then finally after this is this new heaven and the new earth, and that's what takes us to this passage in Second Peter three verses ten to thirteen. You see, he, so this piece of it right here and, and ties out to Revelation chapter twenty one as well. So. With those major events, and again, that's just the major ones, not getting into the details of every aspect of it, but his focal point is going to be on this judgment and destruction because of what these false teachers are, are wanting to deny. In other words, Jesus is saying is that there is going to be this destruction and you know, judgment, even though the false teachers are saying it's not going to happen. He would have come. His ten minutes are up. God's not going to come. And so there was this denial. And so what Peter is focusing on is the, that very, very fact uh, of that it will be uh, completed and that he wants it, not only is he going to come, but there will also be, he will deal then with all of the wickedness at that point to ultimately then lead to this new heavens and new earth where there's no sin. It's done. He completes it. So let me ask you a question to start with. Is this true today? And I ask the question, is it true today as it relates to the fact is, is that there is this emphasis that, that, of false teachers that want to deny this coming judgment and destruction. Is it happening today? Or is it just something that it was dealing with then? 2 Timothy 4. Take a, again, a quick look at that again. Because I, I, I absolutely agree with that statement. I think it is accelerating. Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Timothy 4, 1 to 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. There's the judgment. He will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I want to submit that that, that exhortation from... Paul to Timothy, can we can parallel this to the degree, to the degree of what Peter is saying there? Because what he is saying is, is that Christ will come, he's going to come and he's going to judge. And so therefore, 
preach the word. Because what he's going to talk about here is this expectation, this eagerly waiting, looking for, and this diligence that Peter focuses on, which is actions on our part as believers in holiness and godliness, living those things out. Why? Because the time will come, and that time is building. Because what we're seeing is, is that is this true today? I would tell you that when you ask someone, say, well, say, well, sure, you know, I, I, I want to go to heaven. Or when you, it's all about that. No one talks about the hell or the destruction piece of it. And so what Peter is saying is, is that, hey, this will happen. And for those that reject Christ, that is the result, is destruction and judgment to those that, who have not accepted Christ. So it is true today. So this, this call for steadfastness, I'll call this, and Peter has been reminding his readers that the judgment is going to come. So God has a purpose in why it has not happened. I want you to think about that. That God has a very specific purpose in why it has not happened. And so in the verses that follow, starting in verse 11, he begins to elaborate on what those purposes are. So, Second Peter 3, pick up with verse 11. He precedes this, he says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Question. Second Peter 3.11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what does all this, these things mean? What is he referring to? All these things. What's all these things? Groaning for the... Yeah, you know, specifically, like when we think about all these, you just, you just go back and look at what he just wrote. You go back to the preceding verses. Specifically, the one that precedes this, he's saying, look, he's talking about these things are to be destroyed. He's talking about the heavens and the earth itself, and all its works are going to be destroyed, and it's all of the things that he's talking about. At the same time, Mark, I take you back to verse 9, that the Lord is not, not slack concerning his promises, some counsel, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so within this in itself is this is where all God is still redeeming. I mean, he's, he's working it right now. He has a very specific purpose. And I would say is, is that when we think about it from that perspective, that God, he hasn't come, he didn't come yet, so therefore, what, what are, what's supposed to be happening? What do we do? as well as what are some of the things. He's still bringing many to faith in Him. So since this is going to happen, <laughs> since it's going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, what is Peter asking us to recognize? What is Peter asking us to recognize? All the works, all the things we do are just preparation, just training. That's just to recognize that walking in 
trained and purified. Yeah. Relationship, not the... It, it, it clearly it is a reality that you're pointing to, and so it, it becomes. Um, if you had, uh, you ever have one of those days where you've got like 15 things you got to do, right? And you're just you're on the move, like this, and all of a sudden you're kind of you're going down the basement, and you knew you needed to do take this, this, and this, but then you also knew that you had to pick up this and take that up, and so sometimes you quickly. You discern to say is that, you know what, I don't want to get distracted. I have to do this because that is the priority. That becomes first. At the same time, we, what we find ourselves, Mick, the way you described it is, is that we're just going to do stuff because, like, well, since I'm down here, I'll do all these other things. And he's saying, look, there is a reality that I want you to focus on, and that is that it is. This judgment is coming. It's coming. So, for those believers that are experiencing suffering and persecution, be patient. Wait. I'll deal with it. The psalmist, we see that. You know, it's how, how long are you going to let this keep going on? God's going to take care of this. And so, he is, what he's saying, this question is like, what sort of people? And it's like this long sentence in there. I don't, even though the, it's a question, I don't believe it's a question. I believe it's almost like a rhetorical type of question. It's like, Come on, what, what kind of person are, you, are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be doing? That's not a question. It's a statement. Or it's almost like a, an exclamation. Change that you know, down to an exclamation point. It's a declaration type of uh, significance. There's a certain element, too, in there that not only are we to work in the first person, work for our own conduct and godliness, but... Like he said, you know, they're trying to bring in as many as possible the fold. We as Christians should do what we can to expedite others into good side so that they don't have to go down. Let's go there because I think that's exactly... When he, when he segues and he says that our conduct... Again, look at the passage. He says that since all these things are going to happen, we dissolve what manner of persons or what persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness. So when you think about holiness and godliness, describe them for me. What, what does that mean? What does holiness mean? Let's, let's define it together. Be like Christ. Be set apart like Christ. Okay? Godliness. Absolutely. There's this commitment to these two, this, this, this result, which is to be like Christ, in this pursuit of Christ, in this commitment, this loyalty, this drive, is we have. It's really interesting is that they're like in the plural. Depending on your version of this, it says in holiness and godliness in there. It's like this statement of they're like in the plural. And so what that is means to us is that it's not just in these three areas only. It's all. It's everything. It's like everything in life. And so everything that we do is to be characterized with by holiness and godliness. Now, Peter began this concept back in chapter 1 and in his first letter. And it's really interesting is that he has again bridged it and he's ended the same way he started. Let's just start with that one. Go, to, look at, look at, go back a few pages to 1 Peter 1. Verses 3 to 5. And so, 
what he, in this concept, and what he's saying is there is that, okay, he's saying, look, how are, you to be, how are you to be acting then? What is your behavior to be like? It should be in holy conduct and godliness. And so what he points at is that God provides that power. Going back to chapter 1, here is how he starts off his whole letter, Second Peter 1, chapter, two, chapter 1, verses 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our, of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Do you see how he bridges that to how he ends this chapter? Same way. With holiness and conduct, First uh, Peter, First Peter one verse thirteen. Therefore, gird up your loins uh, of your mind to be sober and and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's His second coming. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The moment of this that has to do with me. Well, I don't want us to miss it, because yeah. I sit up and you ask the question, which is what is response to this thing? But I think the other piece, that, like, in order to have the right response, we have to train reference. And so his point is, like, like going to happen. The response that we should, or the task us to recognize is that God has these things all in control. He's like, He's perfect. He's working his that aside to come, and like nothing can thwart that. Mm. And as a result of that framework, because I just find like in my life, like if I don't have the right frame of reference, frame of reference, then I I'll do different things that that are not real, not important. You know, said before, to doing stuff, right? And I think that's what he's. Question is what asking. God is in control, He's on the throne, He is accomplishing His purpose. It only makes sense back to your point. It's like the no duh <laughs> that if I have that frame of reference, then I'm going to um, live my life. And to build on that, too, is um, don't misinterpret this because I think by Him bridging how He concludes it with it, he's, He serves as this foundation. He says, by, by the way, I gave you this. I, I God, He's saying is, is that, again, He has, His divine power has given to us all these things that pertain to life and godliness. Our tendency in the flesh is to say, okay, I'm going to be holy and I'm going to be godly. Right? I'm going to start today. And this is what it's going to look like. That's not what he's, Peter is saying. Is that you already have it. And so it is an engagement. It is a stirring up of that, and it's the outflow of the heart that really we begin to see, and that's what then shapes the conduct aspect of it. And so, I believe we, we see what Peter is implying is that do you really know the living God? Do you really understand the reality of His coming again? And if so, then this would be the driver for us in this pursuit of holiness and godliness. In other words, our behavior and our conduct.
it is this outflow. Having served for 20 years in the armed forces, you always had an objective. If you ever went flying, you had an objective. You were something you were striving for. Our objective is to be and blameless before the living God at the second coming. Therefore, our actions are to conduct ourselves and to behave so as to be able to meet that objective, standing blameless. Hmm. When you, that reality, and I like the way you articulated that, is that when He comes, is that we will be before Him. So how will you be found? That really is the driver. That's how you just, how I just picked up on that. And so in verse 12, then he says, he builds on that by saying, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. This looking for and hastening is used in the verses, we see it in 12, we see it in 13 and 14. And our behavior and our conduct is motivated by expectation and desire in believers have a different perspective and focus on life. Now, I want to build on this into two way, two different examples, if I could. And I want to use a verse to do this, so that when we look at this, this looking for, it is clearly this expectation, is that you look forward to something. When you use look forward to, you use it in a positive framework, right? In how you'd write it. Um, you don't say, well, I'm looking forward to hell. <laughs> you would say you look forward to these to heaven. There's this expectation in there. At the same time, is that there, when he writes this, he's saying that there is this looking for the coming of the day of God. And so, for the believer, it, it means that we are looking for this final completion of the fullness of redemption being completed at that point, is that we're looking forward to that. And also with that is you have this, this, this term of hastening that is there. And the term hastening also can, shows that there is some actions, right? It's like there's doing some things. So it is this earnest desire we see here, but there's also this actions that we have. And I want to, Cheryl, you had mentioned, a, you know, you made a comment about sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good word. Take a, you know, I want to read you Matthew 24, verse 14. And it's, it's actually talking about these, this, um, during the tribulation period, this, still the, the proclamation of the gospel during that period. It's, it's, it's Matthew 24, verse 14. But listen to the, the, the content of it. In this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. So what we're reminded of is, is that the, the preaching of the gospel has been, it's, it's been a continuum. It never stops until that final opportunity is there. And so when you talk about this hastening part of it, is that we see a responsibility too as believers, is that this holiness, this godliness that's living out Christ, but it is also proclaiming that. And are you God's instru- instrument, more or less? In other words, when, um, when I say that, we, okay, we, want, we, want, we want Christ to come soon. Come soon. But in the interim, 
is there a hastening to our service in our ministry that would be the drivers? In other words, that we, we do we recognize that God's saying, well, I need you to go and share the gospel with her before it's time. <laughs> it's the patience of God. In other words, are you the instrument that allows... So, it's, so therefore, what do, you, do we sit back? It's not passive, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's not passive. There is also a split nature of that hastening, that it is both by word and by deed, both by mouth and action. It's weird. Are we to fear the future of the Lord? No. In fact, we are to eagerly hope for it. And you know, some of the passages I think that are just really First um, Corinthians chapter one, verse seven. Paul's writing. He says, uh, "So that you may, so that you know, so, excuse me, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting the revelation of our Lord." Jesus Christ. Chapter 16, verse uh, 22. He ends this letter to the Corinthians. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come! Exclamation point. So we see that there's no fear, but there is this eagerness in the hope of Christ's coming. Now, this coming... Uh, in going back to Second Peter, this coming of the day of God, um, I have to tell you, it's kind of an unusual expression in the context of the day of the Lord. He uses the day of the Lord, um, obviously, in verse 10, and now he refers to the coming of the day of God. Well, I don't know specifically what it's referring to, but I'm going to give you a, one reference point is in Revelation chapter 16 is that we see this other reference to that same wording. Revelation, and this again is um, verse 16 says, and they gathered them together to the uh, oops, wrong one, wrong verse. Verse 14, 15, 14. But they, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to, uh, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God. So, what's the takeaway? You know, it could be that he's still referring to this similar, this which would be this main climactic point, more or less, in the day of, of the Lord itself. That's what that could refer to. But I'm also going to go back to Mark. I'll take your passage in Romans 8, or even 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that... There is also not only this day of God, but then is this day of God is this the day of the Lord we know is this this period of judgment and destruction. We see that in the context of Revelation. But could the day of God also be what it it, it, it summarizes what Paul is is saying in Romans eight? I don't know that. I'm just I just know what Romans eight says that from the standpoint. Market. Take a look at that. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation, there we have this, of the creation, the new heavens and the earth, 
eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs to, uh, together until now. And so, I understand what, he, what, what we see in the context. Clearly, it ties out exactly to the fact that he is talking about destruction. But without question to the believer, do we not look to that ultimate completion of God's plan in eternity. Isn't that what we eagerly wait for? You know, we don't always eagerly wait for the bad guys to get destroyed. You know, we're eagerly waiting for the fact that when we will be complete in glory at the end. The end of the chart. <laughs> Peter goes on, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to his promise, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, it's clearly and is rooted in the Old Testament. And just for time's sake, I won't be able to go through all of these in here. But you see uh, clearly, especially in Isaiah, it's, it points specifically to this almost verbatim of the new heavens and the new earth being described. And what it's really getting at is that what God promises will come true. God promised it, and the promise will come true. Now, when we see this, that God will create a new heavens and a new earth, there is a direct connection that we would see when it says a new heavens and a new earth. When you have the same words of heavens and earth, you simply then focus into the word new, which means then it is connected with the old. Agreed? Because there's a new heavens, and so it means new in quality. It is different. It's unlike anything that would be previous. Now, the precedence that we saw from Peter is that he showed it that the first heavens and the earth suffered destruction by flood. When we looked at that, is you, would, you knew is that when the flood came, that there was a complete radical change in the atmosphere. Everything changed, right? It was a change. It wasn't gone, but it was changed. And that would be the similarity. In, while Peter is still sharing this in both first letter of Peter and second letter, set precedence for that. But this time, as he describes it in second Peter, this time it's going to be greater, complete, more complete, more radical, and made completely new when they are destroyed by fire and then recreated by God. So, in this time, this new heavens and new earth will be a new creation. Recreated by God. But, it's been so long. (laughs) But it's been so long. And so, the conclusion on this is that we, I think, can quote this many times, but it's been so long. And I think that the key takeaway is that Peter is saying, I understand. It's been long. But simply is that, can you look at it from God's perspective? We need to look at it from God's perspective. And I'm going to tell you, we cannot look that way. We can't do it. Our minds are finite. It just doesn't take us there. So the new heavens and the new earth will be this place of dwelling of righteousness. I love how he ends in verse 13 that according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and new earth in which 
righteousness dwells. It's going to be this residence of righteousness. <laughs> and so what does this mean? Revelation 21, Isaiah 60, what does it mean to you? This residence of righteousness. There's no sin. There's no sin. It is this, this complete characterization of righteousness. No sin. So he commands this diligence in our pursuit. And as I close on this section here, he commands this diligence. And this diligence is in pursuit of 2 Peter 5.11. He talks about those particular character qualities that are obviously resident there within those believers. And so what resources and means do we do it is really... It goes back to how he started the chapter, Second um, Peter 1, verses 5 to 11, actually. And it is the resources means is by God, period. And so the peace, then he goes on in, in that passage, he says that, therefore, looking forward to, to all things, be diligent to be found in him in peace. And so peace will be a mark of those believers. Peace is, the, is a key recognition, the peace of God, is a key recognition of a true believer. We were with a, was talking yesterday with a nurse, and she was talking about some of her patients that were just struggling with illnesses. And her conclusion was, she's a believer. She says, "I have, I, I, I have no way of understanding how people cope absent of faith, because she said there is no peace in their life when they are ill, they're troubled without Christ. So therefore." There's nothing that's there. It's, no, there's, nothing, there's no depth to it. And he says that in him in peace and without spot and blameless. And so we see this, this spotless character as being somewhat of a description that we see of Jesus Christ. And this blameless reputation. These we see are in contrast to the false teachers which would be those that uh, would the opposite of these, but those that like Christ in, we see. So I want to close this out here real quick here. And so therefore, the purity of the Savior is to manifest itself in our lives as His people. In other words, Jesus Christ at the core. And as His second coming, when we must be diligent to be found in Him in peace and producing the evidences of our salvation. So, this is the outflow. So does this mean that as a Christian that we, don't, we, we live without sin? No. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. But it simply means is, is that through the power of Christ and through Christ is that we have the ability to address those things in our own lives. In other words, as a child of God, when we walk in obedience to Him, how does it address the sin that keeps asserting itself is that it's on the foundations of Christ. The forgiveness that we have in Him and this desire and ex- expectation for the future, but also to pursue Him. So for believers, the promise of Christ's return serves as a really, a truly a powerful, powerful incentive. And some of the practical things that believers should be practicing, these are the things in our lives that we are only through Christ and only by the power of the Holy Spirit are we able to forsake those sinful temptations and those situations. It is the very practices of prayer in our own lives and the, the taking in of Scripture that we do 
and then our worship and our fellowship. So as a final takeaway, as believers, Peter tells us we need to be eagerly expecting and looking forward. Expecting and looking forward to that day. When God will take possession of all, of everything. That's It's final. And ultimately, we will then savor, we'll bask in this glory of the new heavens and the new earth where it's the residence of righteousness and a glorious destiny for those who are redeemed. And so when you look at ultimately your destiny, which is glory, how are we to be? How ought we to be? And yet also the sobering truth of the frightful destiny to those that reject salvation in Christ. So next week we will pick up with uh, in verse 15 where he considers this long-suffering and makes a connection himself to uh, the Apostle Paul. Okay? Mark, can you close us in prayer? Father, we can't help but uh, be overcome by incredible faithfulness as we bitter all uh, called into thoughtless, called into father, many times conduct and our behavior as we think about loving peace with the Thoughtless and blameless, Father, I pray that, Father, I pray that your partition be tighter and deeper. Father, we help that during our lives to you today as we purchase just that purpose by which you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.